We have been in a series in John, John chapter 16. Um, We'll be in John 16 this morning, and it has been incredible. And we are quickly moving to the end of John, where we'll be at the crucifixion and the resurrection just in a few weeks. But this morning, we get to talk about the Holy Spirit. Uh, And I am excited. Uh, I almost feel like I should go no microphone and just kind of yell like you're at an old Episcopal service or something like that, where we can just yell and scream, and it will be a good time. But um, I don't know if I, I think my voice would go out if I did that. Um, So John chapter 16, we're going to do 33 verses here. It's a long chapter, and so I just want you to listen um, and ask the Lord to stir your affections. So John chapter 16, starting in verse 1, he says, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they not know, uh, they have not known the Father nor me, but I have said these, these things to you that when their hour comes, you rem- may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness because I go to the father and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say, say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that, that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us a little while and you, will, and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that what they wanted to ask him. Um, and so he said to them, is this why you are asking what you are asking to yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. 
so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one, no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Verse 29, his disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet, I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So, hypothetical question. If you had one night left on this earth, what would you want to talk about, right? What would you want to talk about? Dallas Cowboys? Do you want to talk about your favorite food? Would you want to talk about your favorite memories with some of your family and friends? Maybe some final life advice for your kids or maybe your spouse, if you have that kind of uh, friendship. Um, It's interesting, Jesus on his final night with his disciples, what did he talk about? He talked about the spirit. He wanted to make clear to the disciples the role and the work of the spirit. And so that's our text today is Jesus is gonna answer the question, who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do and how does he interact with us? One of the most influential theologians in history, Obi-Wan Kenobi, said in episode four of Star Wars, he said this about the force. The force is what gives the Jedi his power. It is an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us and penetrates. It binds the universe together. And I think that too many Christians today, when they think of the Holy Spirit, they think of something like, well, it's just like the force, right? No, it is not like the force. And I fear that if you were to ask many Christians today, hey, describe the Holy Spirit, they wouldn't know what to say. They wouldn't know how to communicate who the Spirit is or what he does. First, a lot of times we'll refer to the Spirit as an it. The Spirit is not an it. The Spirit is a he. He is a person. And we see him doing personal sorts of actions. The Spirit grieves in Ephesians 4.30. He intercedes in Romans 8. He testifies here in John 16. He cries in Galatians 6. He speaks in Mark 13. And I want two aspects of what the Spirit does is particular, we see it in this text. He convicts, or we might say he awakens, or he reveals, and he glorifies. So I want to look at the awakening or the convicting work 
of the Holy Spirit first in this text. Now, remember, we are in the moment between the Lord's Supper, or the Last Supper, and Judas's betrayal the next morning. So if you picture where we are in the timeline of Jesus, that's where we're at, between the Lord's Supper and Jesus's arrest. This conversation in this upper room happens for about three chapters. It's a long conversation. And so you get this conversation where Jesus is going to bring up the helper, the Holy Spirit, several different times over and over. You see it in chapter 14, verses 16 through 17, and then in verse 26. And then again in chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. And then the fourth and fifth moments about the Holy Spirit happen in our text this morning, verses 4 through 11 and 12 through 15. So five times, five times in these chapters on Jesus' last night, he talks about the Holy Spirit. This is important. This matters. And so I want to pick up in verse 7. Verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It seems strange at first. He says, it is good that I go away. Like, how is that possibly true? (laughs) Think about it. How is it possibly true that it's good if Jesus goes away? He says, if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit, the helper, cannot come. That word cannot or will not is important. The Spirit's dwelling within believers cannot begin until Christ's work is complete, until his death, resurrection, and ascension happens, until the forgiveness of sin happens, until his victory over sin happens. The Spirit can't come until that work is complete. And that was hard to understand for the disciples. They're like, whoa, wait a minute. You're the Messiah, You're our rabbi. You're our savior. There's nothing worse than you leaving. And frankly, it's hard for us too, if you think about it. Like like I've heard people say, and I've thought about this, like if only, if only Jesus were here, if only I could see him, if only I could touch him, if I could sit down and have a meal with him, if I could walk with him, would I believe? If I could do those things, then I would absolutely. Believe. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Or have you ever thought that? My question is, would you really? Because they saw him. They touched him. They didn't believe. They rejected him. And I would be willing to bet that if most of us lived in first century Palestine, we would reject him too. And I think sometimes we think of the Holy Spirit, at least I do, so maybe this is more of a confession. I think that we think of the Holy Spirit as almost the understudy to Jesus. Like, have you ever gone to a play and the main actor is sick or they're out of town and you get to see the understudy? Or maybe your favorite quarterback gets hurt and you got to settle for the backup quarterback, right? And you're like, oh man, if only they were there. I feel like that's how we kind of talk about the Holy Spirit sometimes. Or maybe how we think of the Holy Spirit. And in that thinking, our misunderstanding of who the Spirit is and what the Spirit does is revealed. It's illuminated because friends, What we have with the Holy Spirit, we are not settling. We are not settling. The Holy Spirit is God, and we are in desperate need of him. So what does the Holy Spirit actually do? Well, we see it in verse 8. It says, when he comes, 
He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is an incredible moment. Before this moment, Jesus has primarily spoken about the spirit to the disciples as someone who is coming. He has described the spirit as a helper. But here in this moment, Jesus begins to introduce the disciples to who the spirit actually is. And the first thing that he says is he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Think about it like this. When the spirit comes or when he came, he teaches us what is most wrong with the world. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness. And so if I asked you, what is wrong with the world? You would probably have a lot of answers, right? But if I asked you, what is wrong with the world? Some of you might say, well, the, the oppressed, human trafficking, greed, our political system, racism. There's a million things you could say But what does the Bible say? Look at verse nine. He says, concerning sin, so I will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. They do not believe in me. So what is wrong with the world? What is the Holy Spirit convicting the world of? The world's unbelief in Jesus. And you know this, but the root of all sin is Unbelief. Sin is choosing to delight yourself or satisfy yourself in something other than God. That's what happened in Genesis 3, that God had created paradise. Like when you think of Genesis 3 in the garden, don't think grandma's backyard. Think paradise, glory. He created this for him, everything they could ever want. And the enemy comes and what does he say? Did God really? Does God? And he begins to plant doubt in their minds. They begin to doubt. Maybe God isn't really for us. Maybe there is something better than God. And that unbelief leads to sin. I want you to understand something. It's not just that you looked at something that you were supposed to. It's not just that you looked at something you weren't supposed to, or that you said something that you shouldn't have said, that you talked to your kids a certain way. It's not just that you did something bad or that you have a love for money. So many times we are convicted about a sin, so we assume that God just wants us to stop doing something. And that's where we end it. But the Spirit's work is much more deeper and intimate than that. It's much more deeper and intimate than that, that the Spirit not only reveals our external sins, but His aim is to convict you of the thing in your soul that makes you want to act that way your unbelief, your doubt, your fear. It's not just that you did something wrong when you sin, it's that there is something wrong with your heart. There's something not in step with the Spirit of God. But the Spirit doesn't just want to show you what's wrong. I think for me, um, I became a Christian when I was in high school, and I remember when I thought of the Spirit, I would get kind of scared because I felt like anyone would talk about the Spirit, it was in connection with sin. Like, oh, okay, if the Spirit's talking to me, that automatically means that I'm just doing something bad. And I would want to run away from that. So I think a lot of times when we hear Holy Spirit, we think, okay, this is where he tells me how bad I am. But that's not only what the Spirit does. Look at verse 10. He says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. 
So the Spirit not only shows us what's wrong, but the Spirit also shows what's right. How? Think about this. For the disciples, they can look at Jesus and they see what? Righteousness. They see holiness. They see sinless. They see perfection. He is perfect. Time and time again, he points out to the disciples where their hearts are off, where their hearts are not aligned with God. But what happens when he leaves? Right? What happens when he leaves? They're not going to be able to watch him and learn from him. He's not going to be able to point out the places where their hearts are misplaced. He's not going to be able to show them who God truly is. So he says, in my absence, the spirit will continue to show you what I have already showed you, but it's going to be better. That's what he says. It's going to be better. It's to their advantage because think about it. They are no longer watching the righteousness of God. They're no longer watching the righteousness of God, but the righteousness of God is dwelling within them. That's incredible. (laughs) They are no longer watching, but now they are participating in the righteousness of God, that the spirit is in their heart, that right now in this very moment, if you have put your faith in Christ, the righteousness of Christ is in you. You're not watching someone else be holy. God has put his holiness inside of you. Colossians 1, 27, uh, Paul says, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which he says, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I live, but Christ who lives where? In me. Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So not only does the Spirit convict you of sin, but he also convicts you of righteousness because God has placed his Spirit in you. And he shows you Here's what's right. Here's what it means to live like Jesus lived. That Jesus is inside of us, realigning our hearts with his. So he convicts of sin and he convicts of righteousness. And what is this third conviction? And are you confused? Because I was the first time I read it. He says, judgment, verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And here, this is actually pretty incredible. This isn't the kind of judgment that you and I are used to, like where we do something wrong and then you judge me, right? Or you do, you do something wrong and I judge you. The Holy Spirit here is urging the church and, wanting, and reminding us to live and tell the world that the victory over sin has been won. That's what this is saying, that the church shouts to the world, the enemy has been defeated, he has been judged, and you can find your full satisfaction and hope in Jesus that we get to say, yes, I know it looks bad. I know people are sick. I know tensions are high. I know it seems like there is no hope, but a savior has come and he is present with us right now. Think about this. In this moment in the upper room, Jesus is so convinced, he's so convinced that what is about to happen his death and resurrection, he's so convinced that that will be successful to destroy the work of Satan. He's saying that the cross was the death blow to Satan, a precursor to his final 
destruction at the end of Revelation, he's so confident that it's going to happen that this text, it's in present and past tense. He doesn't say, hey, I'm going to the cross and the enemy will be judged. What does he say? Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. He is judged. He doesn't say the ruler will be judged. He says he is judged, that this victory is ours. Hope is ours. Joy is ours. Because we know what's wrong and we know what's right. And as a faith family, we proudly move through the world with our eyes set on Jesus and proudly proclaim our king has already won the victory. The ruler of this world is judged. He is judged. We, say, we see this play out with the disciples throughout Acts. It's pretty incredible. Like if all you knew about the disciples was the gospels, <laughs> like what they did in the gospels, um, then they would not be all that impressive. But, but, and here's what's clear about them in the gospels. They are constantly confused. You ever notice that? Like they're constantly confused. They're always saying things like, why are we doing this? Where are we going? It's like your two-year-old in the back seat. Like, where are we going? Why do we do this? Why does it do this? Why does it do this? I don't understand. Why would you? What did you mean when you said? What is, it's all, it's constant. Just, they're constantly confused. And we see that they are consistently cowards. They're consistently cowards. Like they're always afraid. They're just always afraid. Think about it. This is what life is like before the Holy Spirit. This is what life is like before the Holy Spirit. The best way to describe them is confused cowards. <laughs> That's the best way to describe them. But what we see in Acts is a completely transformed and changed disciples. Like all of a sudden they are able to understand and communicate things that they were not able to understand before. In Acts 17, it says that these men turned the world upside down. How? How? because they knew everything, because they were special? No, because they had literally the Holy Spirit, God within them. And their confusion turned into clarity and their cowardness turned into boldness. In a few weeks, we're gonna see the disciples scatter when Jesus gets arrested, that when things get hard, they run, they're cowards. But in Acts, do you remember Acts 4? I don't know if you're familiar with the book of Acts, but in Acts 4, there are these temple officials that arrest them, okay? And then in Acts 4.13, it says this, these temple officials, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So these officials, these government officials look at Peter and John and say, these dudes are uneducated. They're just normal Dudes, there's nothing special about them, but they couldn't deny the works that God was doing through them because God was dwelling within them, that the helper that Jesus spoke about was there doing the same work that Jesus was doing, except this time Peter and John weren't watching. They were participated, participating. And these leaders, they're concerned. In verse 16 in Acts 4, they say, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident, is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak to no one 
to anyone in this name. So they say, you need to stop. Stop talking about Jesus. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So they say, we have to shut them up. We cannot allow this to continue. Verse 20 here says that they were threatened. Think about it. What happened when their lives were threatened when Jesus was arrested? They ran. They ran and they hid. But now, with the Holy Spirit, look what happens in Acts 4, 19 and 20. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. And then verse 20. For we cannot, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. <laughs> For we cannot but speak. It's almost as if there is something inside of them that is compelling them to speak about Jesus. Because there is. It's the same reason you have the apostle Paul to say, hey, to die is gain. This is what happens when the spirit comes. He reveals what's wrong. He reveals our unbelief. He reveals our sin. He reveals what's right, that Jesus is good. He's perfect. He's worth it. He's worth giving up our lives for. And then we are told by the spirit, the enemy of this world is judged. The victory has come. So you know what? You are empowered to hope. You have a reason to hope. You have a reason to have joy and you are empowered to declare sin will not win because God already has the victory over the enemy. And I've seen it in my own life. And you know what? I've seen it in a lot of your lives as well. I've seen it. I've seen many of you move from confusion to clarity, from cowardice and fear to boldness, to faith. There's a difference between just sitting and listening to a sermon and completely surrendering all of your heart and your mind to these words. I'm not talking about even the words, the commentary I'm giving. I'm talking about the scriptures. There's a difference between sitting and hearing me read them and you going, show me, convict me, reveal to me. What is right? What is wrong? What is the victory? Like, show me, illuminate the meaning of God's word. So many times when we sin, we try to just will ourselves out of it. I will not sin. I will not sin. I will not sin. It never works. But you know what the spirit does? He comes alongside of you and he fights for you. And he fights with you. That you wouldn't come with your intellect to the word and say, okay, this doesn't make sense, so it must not be true. But you say, Spirit, open my eyes to see what, you do, what you're doing and who you are. So let me ask you, do you see the Spirit's work in your life? Do you see it? Do you have a hard time identifying where the Spirit is working or how the Spirit works? Are you able to easily identify, yes, this is what the spirit of God does. This is what he does. Are we coming to one another and repenting of our wrongdoing? Is that happening in our home groups? Is God leading you to speak words, the words of scripture over people in your life? Is, does he drive you to pray? Does the spirit drive you to pray for the people around you, for your own heart, for your spouse? Is there something inside of you that drives you and pushes you to say, I am compelled for I cannot but speak about Jesus. 
And I imagine that there are many of you in this room who say, in your head, say, no, I don't feel that. I don't feel that, that, that drive to, to read and to pray and to speak. And that's because in this life, there is a battle happening right now. A battle. Galatians 5 talks about it. That there is a battle happening right now between the spirit of God and your flesh. These two things, as the Bible talks about it, they are opposed to one another. They have different goals. They have different goals for your mind, different goals for your body, different goals for your heart. And in this moment, even while I am talking, they are waging war. That the flesh right now in this moment wants you to check out or to judge. It wants you to focus on anything else but the word of God that is being proclaimed. Art wants you to focus on the ineffectiveness or the inabilities of the proclaimer or something that's happening around you that you would focus on my bad jokes or how I stumble on my words or whatever instead of the actual word that's being proclaimed. The flesh wants you to cause, wants to cause doubt in your heart or apathy or fear. The spirit wants you to hear the word of God See your sin revealed, see the goodness of God, see the goodness of Jesus, the glory of God revealed. And it wants to give you boldness and confidence in this life that God has already won the victory over the enemy. In this moment, they are battling right now. And there are seasons when this battle will will feel small. It It will feel insignificant. Where you can clearly hear the voice of the spirit, that the spirit's voice is much louder than the voice of the flesh, where you can say, oh yeah, that's a lie. (laughs) I'm not listening to that. I know that's not true about me. I know that's not true about them. And you can clearly tell the voice of the spirit compared to the voice of the enemy. But there are seasons, and you know this, when it feels like the flesh, the enemy is coming after you with a sledgehammer and you can't breathe. It's exhausting. You ever felt like that? It's just exhausting. And there will be some battles with the flesh that are lost. There will. And here's why this is so hard. The spirit and the flesh promise the same thing. They promise the same thing. They both promise freedom. That the spirit says, I will give you freedom in this life. Freedom in Christ. Freedom from sin. But the flesh makes the same promise. The flesh promises, if you just do this, you will be satisfied. If you just do this, then you will be free. So what do we do about that? It's, you know, I tried to think of a really interesting way to say this. (laughs) It's literally asking the spirit to show us his word, his will, and God's rhythm and heart for us and for his own name that we would say, yes, you are worthy of all glory and there is no one else I would give glory to. You are the only one that's worthy of it. Make me less so that I can make you more. There's really not a well eloquent, a really eloquent way to say this except his word and his people. His word and his people that the spirit will often use others in the faith family to speak to you. I remember um, I was 21 years old. I was a youth minister in Holland, Texas. I have to say Texas because I want you to think of the country. It's literally like a town of like 100 people down the road. 
And um, it was my first job um, in ministry. And I went, so just a little background on me. I went, had a Baptist undergrad at Mary Hunt Baylor and a Baptist seminary degree from Southwestern Theological, South, uh, Baptist Theological Seminary. And so in the Baptist world, and some of you know this, it's not father, you know, father, son, spirit. It's father, son, Bible. <laughs> and so when I got to Holland, Texas, um, I had not been exposed a lot to the work or the works of the spirit. I didn't have a lot of framework for what the spirit could do and what the spirit's role was. And when I showed up, there was a lady there. And uh, it was similar to this. I would preach about once every four weeks or so. And there was a lady there that no matter what, after I preached, she would get up in my face and she would say, I have a word from the Lord for you. And I would be like, like as a 21 year old who had no context for what the spirit did, I was like, what? <laughs> and she, she literally scared me for the first month I was there. I was like, I have no idea what's happening in this moment. And I kind of just wrote her off, right? Like, yeah, I don't understand what's happening there. So I'm going to let her do her thing. And I'm just going to do my thing. And I'm just going to try to like, not, I don't know, dive into that world. Well, what happened is that she would do this at least once a month. She would always say something. She would have a, a word picture for me. Like one time she said, I, when I see you, I see a waterfall coming over you. Or she would say, I have a word from the Lord. That word is perseverance. And what happened was that she would say this and then with, without hitting, a, you know, without stumbling or without, I mean, it was just whatever she, that word she had for me, that was the theme in my life for the next week. That all of a sudden I would try to forget what she said, but then I would come to the word and I would just like see nothing but the word waterfall or the picture of expiation that God is cleansing me of my sin like a waterfall, like a waterfall is coming over me. Or she gave me the word perseverance and the next, next week my dad died. And, and it was like whatever word she had for me or whatever word picture, God would use that. And I would come to the word and I would say, yes, I see it. I see it. And there's so many times where I think that we don't really know how to communicate to each other what the spirit is telling us. Does that make sense? Like, like it's, almost, it's almost like in our culture, it's out of practice. It's out of the norm on how to talk to one another and communicate what the Spirit is speaking to us, whether that is a word from the text or a word picture. And we don't have to go into the different gifts that the Spirit gives. It's another day, another sermon. But, but what I would ask of you for today is that you would be open to saying, I feel like the Spirit, I was reading this text this week, and I feel like the Spirit and wants, wants you to hear this. And I think so many times in our world, we fight that. Like, that's uncomfortable, right? It's weird, but, but man, I wonder how much of our joy is being robbed because we are so scared of the Spirit because we don't understand how he works. What I would encourage you to do is maybe some of you for the first time, sit down, read the text, and actually ask the Spirit to show you what he wants you to speak, what he wants you to say, what he wants you to hear, what he wants you to, what he wants to be illuminated for you instead of in your flesh coming to the text and go, okay, what do I need today? But allowing the spirit to work in that space. Now in verse 12, Jesus is going to make a promise to the disciples. While these words are secondarily true for us, this moment in verses 12 through 14 is primarily 
for the disciples. So he says in verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So when we read that the spirit will guide you into all truth in verse 13, you have to remember Jesus' audience. The disciples are in the upper room. They are the ones who will be led into all truth. People misapply this verse all the time and say, well, the spirit's gonna help me in my test tomorrow because he's going to lead me into all truth. No, brother, you gotta study, all right? (laughs) Are the spirits gonna tell me who I should marry? He is not. Um, He could. I don't wanna put limitations on the spirit, but he will probably not tell you who you should marry or he's gonna tell you, tell me what kind of house I should buy. He's not. This is a promise, a unique promise for the disciples that the spirit, so hear this, the spirit will take what he knows from Christ, what he hears from Christ, and he will bring it to the mind of the disciples to complete the work of Christ in their hearts and minds. And so this isn't something that where we say, well, now we can predict the future because the spirit will tell us this is meant for the the disciples that the spirit, think about it. He's about to die, be raised from the grave, and then go to heaven with the Father. So the Spirit is about to unpack the significance of those events to the disciples. It means, this is what it means. This is really interesting. The Spirit is responsible for the truths that the apostles preached and which in turn they wrote down, which we now have handed down to us in our Bible. That's what this is talking about that he will complete the work of Christ and the teachings of Christ through the disciples. So you can trust the word that you have in your hand because he has promised the truth to the disciples. So that's verse 12 through 14. And then Jesus begins to change the conversation. He wants to prepare them for what is about to happen. He wants to prepare them for his death. And the fact that he has spent so much of his last evening with him talking about the spirit is no accident. It's part of his preparation. So in verse 16, this gets kind of wordy, but I want you to follow this. He says, a little while and you will see me no more. Again, a little while and you will see me. The disciples are confused. And in verses 17 and 18, they discuss with each other what in the world he means by a little while and they won't see him and then a little while and they will. Jesus knows that they're puzzled. So he says in verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. What's he referring to? He's referring to his death when the disciples will have a deep anguish sense of loss and then his resurrection when they will have a deep sense of joy. And in verse 21, he compares what is about to happen to him and to his disciples with a woman in childbirth. Now, I have never given birth to a child, okay? Obviously. And in fact, I'm not a father, so I've never even been in the room. There was one time that's, you know, bad things happening when I say there was one time. Um, There was one time when my aunt tried to show me her birthing video, and I just ran away. And I was like, look, I'm sure that was a beautiful moment, but that's for you. That's not for me, okay? So I've never seen it. 
And if I do, I only want it to be with my wife. We're going to stop talking about that. Um, (laughs) So (laughs) here's what I think he's saying in this text. For a little while, there is sorrow as a very painful loss occurs. Jesus is being taken from them. But, um, so for, for a little while, there is sorrow because a painful loss occurred. The baby that has been so close and secure and so comfortable is cast out in a painful, bloody birth, right? But again, in a little while, the pain is past and the loss is not really a loss at all, but it's an amazing Gain, the child is not lost, but present in a way that now can go on and on and on. So it will be with Jesus that in a little while, think about this, he will be lost in a painful, bloody crucifixion. There will be weeping and lamenting and fear from the disciples. But Jesus says, look at it like a birth, that the child must be lost from the warmth of the womb to be gained as a person in the world. Yes, I am dying. Yes, it will be painful for you. But in a little while, you will see me again and your sorrow will become joy. What's cool about this, what's cool about this is this actually came true. Like, like so in verse 22, um, we know what Jesus has in mind, his death and resurrection. He says, so you have sorrow now. And then he says, but I will see you again. I will rise from the grave and I will seek you out and your hearts will rejoice. And so when you get to John 20, 20, the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose from the grave, he came to them, remember this, showed them his hands and his side. And John says in 2020, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So this actually happened. What Jesus said in John 16, 22 came true. I will see you again and your hearts will Rejoice. And then we get these amazing words in verse 22. 1622. No one will take away your joy. No one will take away your joy from you. So this joy that we get, it's irrevocable joy. It cannot be destroyed. It cannot be lost. It is sure and firm and solid. solid. And even if everything around you in your soul, in your life gives way, this joy will not. That's what he's saying. No one will take your joy from you. I want to say two things about this verse. First, no one will take your joy from you because your joy comes from being with Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus means, think about this, that Jesus will never die. Your joy comes from being with Jesus. And the resurrection means that Jesus will never die. He will never be cut off from you. Now, this text doesn't offer any guarantees to people who don't enjoy being with Jesus. It doesn't. Like if Jesus said to you this morning, I will see you again, and your heart does not rejoice in being with him, then this text is not a promise for you. It's an invitation, an invitation to love and know Jesus, because if you don't enjoy Jesus, your joy will be taken from you. Does that make sense? Because Jesus is the only permanent joy. So this text is an invitation to people whose joy is mainly in money, our success, our family, our hobbies, our sex, our being liked, or or even church. It's an invitation to see Jesus as the only joy that lasts 
forever. I will see you again and your heart will rejoice forever. And the other reason no one will take your joy from you is because your joy comes from being with Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus means that he will never die and that you will never die. You will never be cut off from him. See, two things have to be true if your joy is to be never taken from you. Two things. One is the source of your joy lasts forever. One is that the source of your joy lasts forever. And the other is that you last forever. Those both have to be true. And I wonder how many people have settled, just settled to say, I will live my life however I want it so that I can be happy. YOLO. Let's make the most of this life while we can. What a tragedy. The resurrection of Jesus means that not only he lives forever as a source of our joy, but that we live forever because he's the source of our joy. (laughs) Jesus said to Martha at the tomb of Lazarus in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. So no one will take your joy from you. How? Because Jesus is the source of your joy and he will never leave you. He will never die. And you will never die because you have put your faith in him and his blood has covered your sin and you will live in his presence forever. However, And we know this to be true, that everlasting joy does not mean that you will not suffer. And Jesus knows this. That's why he says in verse 33, John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus makes two promises here. First, you will have tribulation. And second, you will have peace. And we know this to be true because we have the Holy Spirit, that our joy comes from the Spirit inside of us. Our peace comes from the Spirit inside of us, that when all is lost, the Spirit reminds us, you belong to Jesus. Do you remember the moment in John 20 um, when Jesus appears to his disciples again? In John 20, 21, it says, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then verse 22, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Do you see what he does there? He tells them, peace. He tells them what to do, and then he gives them the tools to do it. Peace. And then he gives them the Spirit. Because the Spirit is the only way that they're going to have peace. And that same spirit is in us, revealing our sin, convicting us of our sin, awakening our hearts to the places where we've settled in this life. We've settled for something less. And he's revealed to us also the goodness, righteousness, and holiness of Jesus. And he's also revealed to us that the victory has already been won. You don't need to walk in fear anymore. That weight that you hold on your shoulder that you carry around every single day that drives your anxiety, your fear, your apathy. Jesus has already won the victory. It doesn't mean that you're not going to suffer or have tribulation, 
but he promises peace. And he's also given you the tools to have it in his spirit.